Thank you so much for giving us the most important thing you have, your time, as we do what we always do. Turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information we need to better discern the times we live in. And you got to get underneath all the caterwauling and hollering and all the nonsense in our news media and social media to do that. We're going to do that today on a couple different things. Let's get it out of the way because I watched it. I felt bad for watching it. I'm disappointed in myself for watching it. I couldn't stop watching it. I was actually laying in bed trying to just go to sleep, but it was so cringy and bad. It's kind of like folks that don't like NASCAR, but they'll watch Talladega and Daytona, the super speedways, because they know there's going to be the massive big car wreck. And that's pretty much what the GOP debate was. This was a disaster piece. This was bad television. This was horrible politics. There was a few one-liners, I guess. But if somebody was just watching this, and knew nothing about the candidates, and knew nothing about the race or the issues at hand, they would say, why are these people acting this way? This was awful. They were all talking over each other. The moderators had zero control. Most of the questions were inane, bordering on irrelevant, and sometimes veering into the ridiculous and absurd. There was very, very little good to come out of this by anybody participating in it. I know all the candidates and the people who have their favorites are going to point to certain individual moments. But please, just take the overall aesthetic of this. The feel of watching the GOP debate was a bunch of also-rans who are desperate to do better than they're doing because the clock's ticking, it's running out, and their only hope of dinging Donald Trump is getting further away because Donald Trump refuses to participate in these debates. Because that's exactly what this is. It's a bunch of very desperate candidates who can't get any traction in the polls, desperately flailing amongst themselves because they can't get in a room with Donald Trump, who's lapping the field a couple times over right now. Now, weird things can happen in this race. Donald Trump has, if Donald Trump loses this primary, it would be the biggest loss by somebody running away with it that we've ever seen in the modern political era. But it could happen. Eventually, all his indictments and all his mess and all his craziness, the weight of it all may just collapse. But the problem is, that's what it looks like. It looks like these are people just waiting around for Donald Trump to magically go away because they don't have any plan to actually attack him because they can't, other than on certain things, because they need his voters. And all Donald Trump needs, math wins in these things, folks, Donald Trump only needs 30 to 35% in these primaries, and he's going to win them. Let me say that again. He doesn't need 50, 60, 70%. He only needs 30 to 35. In some cases, if you go back to 2016, he won some primaries with 27, 28% in a crowded field. That's all he needs, and he has that. He has more than that. He's winning handily, and if he wins three of those first four states or four of the first four states, and he's polling big in all four of them, this thing's over, and it's going to be over fast. And there's not a lot that these people on the stage did last night to make you think 
any differently. People talk about, well, Ron DeSantis. Yeah, Ron DeSantis had a great moment because Dana Perino asked one of the dumbest questions in a debate I have ever heard in my life. And he rightly said, no, this is dumb. We're not doing this. Let's talk about something else. That was a good moment for Ron DeSantis. But did he really say anything different than anybody else other than he adds in Florida to it? He attacked Trump a couple times, but he didn't attack him any way that Christie didn't, except Christie gets so cringy with the Donald Duck stuff. Watching Chris Christie, he Chris Christie needs Donald Trump. It reminded me a lot of when Elon Musk was tweeting stuff, desperately trying to get Donald Trump to come back on Twitter because he needs Donald Trump on Twitter for the platform hits. Christie has to get Donald Trump because that's all he's got is I'm the guy that's going to attack Donald Trump, even though he was before Trump, before he was against Trump and endorsed Trump and let Trump tell him to eat the meatloaf. So he has no credibility on that issue whatsoever. Mike Pence was on the stage. That was entertaining. He has what I like to call the Pence Priolette, where he spins and spins and spins because everything good in the Trump administration, he takes all the credit for and all the bad of Trump who he hitched his star to and sat quietly while he did everything except for one minute for three minutes. He actually stood up for the rule of law and everybody wants us to praise him. I'm not going to. He helped make that situation, but he doesn't want any of the blame. He wants all the credit. None of the blame of what he says is our administration. Nobody voted for you, Mike Pence. It was all Trump. Whatever. Nikki Haley and uh, Senator Tim Scott finally did what we all knew they were going to do. They canceled each other out. And they did it very publicly by just yelling at each other and talking about things like curtains and this such and talking over each other. I don't even know what they were cross talking about because you couldn't hear it. But they basically canceled each other out because when you go to South Carolina, they're going to be in probably third and fourth place or maybe second and fourth or second and third or whatever the case may be. But they're going to cancel each other out and it's not going to really matter. Nikki Haley had some good lines. He did. She did finally have the great one line about Vivek. Rhymes with fake, rhymes with snake. And just said, every time I hear you talk, I feel dumber, which we all do because he's a snake oil salesman who (laughs) he got. You could tell, bless his little heart. You could tell Vivek has listened to his people and his polling that nobody liked him from the first debate. And he tried to change it and he tried to do the self-depreciation. I talk a little fast and whatever else. But the guy is just so phony and there's nothing real about him at all. He comes off sounding more like a politician than the politicians on the stage because he's a total fake and a fraud. And there was other people on the stage, too. Doug Burnham was there. I actually appreciated him actually answering questions, but he's irrelevant and not going to be part of this primary and nobody really cares. But credit where it's due, he did actually answer the questions with some substantive answers. But then he also spent a lot of time yelling at the moderators to please let him talk to the point where they actually threatened to cut his mic and he hushed down. And that was the end of the Doug Burnham. Uh, presidential campaign. Long story short, too long didn't read. None of this matters. Nobody did anything to ding that 30 to 35 percent in the primaries that Donald Trump's going to need to win the primaries. Nobody did anything to make them look better than anybody else, really, except for a few minor incidences like Ron DeSantis. But the problem is everybody in this turns out to be part of the parable of the righteous donkey and the wicked donkey in the field. Have you ever heard this one? There's a righteous donkey in a field, and the wicked donkey starts calling him names and attacking him and unjustly accosting him. And eventually the righteous donkey can't take it anymore and starts attacking back. And they go back and forth, and they argue, and they fight, and they yell at each other. But to the farmer on the fence from a distance, 
all he sees is not a righteous donkey and a wicked donkey. He just sees two jackasses braying at each other and wonders what in the world all the commotion is about. That's what most voters not invested in these candidates in this GOP primary see if they happen to click on the TV of the absolute hot mess that was this debate. It was yelling. It was romper room. It was behavior a kindergarten teacher wouldn't tolerate. And yet we call it politics. No wonder we're going to wind up with the horrible choice of Trump versus Biden. We can't find anybody better who can't manage to navigate their way around this nonsense and act like an actual leader. What a sad testimony. More hurt tell right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. Let's talk about drug decriminalization for a second and Portland, Oregon, which is always a hot button issue on social media. We did one of the shows I'm probably the proudest of, of the real early episodes of Hurtel. Go back and listen to it. We did a whole episode on Portland. Our friends Todd Kelly and Bert Lyko came on the show. Both of them live in Portland. Um, and we did a, basically an hour on Portland because it didn't match the uh media coverage that was going on they both live there they're very honest about a lot of the issues there go back and listen to it. it's like the sixth or seventh episode we ever did years ago we need to do that again because portland's kind of become this bloody shirt that folks wave around on social media and in news media as well especially on the right but let's go out and read this this is from state newsroom through uh, westvirginiawatch.com we'll link to the entire piece this is a long piece we're not going to go through all of it it's got a lot of detail really well written piece by um, Erica Bolstead for Stateline. I'm going to give you the outline of it, though, because it gets into part of the problem of something we talk about a lot. Buzzwords aren't policy. Ideology is not policy. Having a good idea is not policy. Just passing a law does not make for good policy because the law has to be written specifically, and then you still have to have leadership to implement it, and you have to have accountability, and you have to follow up. I'm going to read the first part of this article to set up the meat of it. I'm going to skip through part of the middle section of it a little bit. So make sure you read this whole thing. Portland, Oregon, uh, state line. Just before Portland City Council approved a ban on public drug use last week, that would be the third week of September, Mayor Ted Wheeler described what he observed on his way to work that afternoon. Quote, last time I saw somebody consuming what I believe to be fentanyl publicly on our streets was less than five minutes ago. Three blocks from City Hall, the Democratic mayor said, the Portland ban approved unanimously but subject to legislative approval was the latest reputation of the state's recent groundbreaking approach to drug use. Oregon voters in 2020 passed Measure 110, a first-in-the-nation law decriminalizing the possession of small amounts of controlled substances such as heroin, methamphetamines, cocaine, and fentanyl. Three years later, public drug use has wearied even the most tolerant of Oregonians. In recent months, Portland has reeled from a record number of opioid overdoses, bad press, and a drop in convention and hotel bookings linked to the perception that the city is disorderly and unsafe. Now, the Oregon law faces significant overhaul and repeal, a prospect likely to slow movements 
in other states to treat addiction as a public health matter, not a criminal one. Quote, if we don't figure out how to get this right, efforts to try this approach in other states probably don't launch, said Oregon Rep. Rob Nausey. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing the name. A Democrat from Borland who worked on the implementation of Measure 110 and who continues to support it. What went wrong? A state audit found that the law's rollout was beset by bureaucratic fumbles and a short implementation timeline. A study also has shown the measure's civil ticketing approach had tepid law enforcement support. More critically, it coincided with national fentanyl crisis that overwhelmed the country, not just Oregon, with a cheap, addictive, and deadly drug. Bookmark that for a minute. We're going to come back to the fentanyl part of this in just a second because fentanyl is very different from all the other street drugs that you've heard of, like cocaine and heroin and other things. We'll get back to that in just a second. The measure also took effect during a longstanding homelessness crisis in Oregon and other West Coast states that made public drug use more visible and discomforting, remember that word, in neighborhoods where people live on the streets. It's particularly problematic in Portland, Oregon's biggest city, where high rates of commercial property vacancies have hollowed out some downtown sections. People, this is a quote, people think that Measure 110 has been harmful to Oregon, said pollster John Horvick at DHM Research, who conducted surveys that found 6 in 10 voters think that drug addiction, homelessness, and crime is worse in Oregon. Quote, that's really clear. There's no doubt that's where the majority of the public people are. And even more recent polling in Oregon found that 64% of voters want to repeal portions of the measure including possibly bringing back criminal penalties for possession and 56% support repealing it entirely. The poll conducted by Emerson was commissioned by the Foundation of Drug Policy Solutions, an Alexandria, Virginia organization that opposes criminal decriminalization nationally. Several rural Oregon counties, but also suburban Clackamas County adjacent to Portland, are considering non-binding advisory ballot measures to ask voters what they think of 110 repealing. Now, let's skip down a little bit. This also goes up to uh, neighboring Washington State and their stuff. But this is the heart of this piece. Read the whole piece, but listen to this. Oregon laid out its shortcomings in a state audit released earlier this year that described the launch of Measure 110 as, quote, beset by delays and public friction that could have been addressed with more proactive management by the Oregon Health Authority. Now, listen to this. Why didn't this work? This is why Oregon health officials have acknowledged they were slow to roll out the initial $300 million for behavioral health resource networks. The treatment and recovery services established in each Oregon county to help fill gaps in addiction services. The audit also pointed out that the measure had, quote, unrealistic timelines for implementation. The law decriminalized possession took effect only three months after the election long before detox and recovery networks were fully built out. It was, quote, a very ambitious timeline, acknowledged Kellen Rusolino, a senior advisor at the Drug Policy Alliance, a New York-based advocacy group behind the ballot measure. Police in much of the state were also slow to issue civil tickets, which fined drug users up to $100 unless they call an addiction service hotline to have the penalty waived. A study conducted by researchers at Portland State University found the police are skeptical of Measure 110's ability to motivate people to voluntarily seek treatment. As a result, they're less willing to hand out citations. Quote, we spoke to one officer from an urban sheriff's office that said they believed Measure 110 took away the system's ability to help people recognize rock bottom and kickstart a new life void of drug use, Campbell said. So this, along with many other reasons, 
leaves officers feeling like giving out citations isn't worth their time. In 2020, when Oregon voters approved the measure, the state had the second highest rate of substance use disorder in the country and was ranked last in providing access to addiction treatment. Remember that stat. Highest rate, second highest rate of substance disorder, last in providing addiction treatment. Fatal overdoses were on the rise. The status quo wasn't working and voters knew it, said Tara Hurst, Executive Director of Health Justice Recovery Alliance. Quote, it wasn't an accident that they overwhelmingly said, no, we believe that addiction is a health care issue. We don't want to send people to jail and we don't want to waste our money on that and it doesn't work. Hurst notes that since Measure 110 passed, thousands of people are getting help with substance use disorder in Portland alone. 41 organizations received $59 million to ramp up treatment, recovery, and peer support programs. Other more rural parts of the state are seeing similar levels of resources. Quote, there's much more outreach, there's much more drop-in center, there's more housing. You stay in the bubble of everything's awful, you'll miss what good is happening. But so far, Oregon lawmakers have resisted calls to repeal the measure, although they did pass a bipartisan law this year making it a misdemeanor to possess one gram or more of fentanyl or five or more pills. Other states slammed by the fentanyl crisis toughened laws around the drug Two, according to the National Conference on State Legislatures, at least 103 laws were enacted, including those that harden penalties for possession and distribution. This fall, some Oregon lawmakers will travel overseas to visit Portugal and see how they've managed to more than two decades of criminalization. This will give us a greater understanding of what trials and tribulations Portugal went through on their journey, said Democratic State Senator Flor Przanski, a municipal prosecutor. Advocates continue to plead for more time, saying that such a massive societal shift in how America considers addiction requires more time to take hold. And no state is immune from the discussions on how to address an epic of opioid-related deaths. Accidental overdoses are now the number one cause of death for young people in over 37 states. I'm not going to say this is a pretty rollout, said Hearst, but I don't know that I've ever really heard of any new transformational law going into effect without lots of bumps. That's two parts of this very long article. Read the whole thing. Why am I bringing this up? Decriminalization is a great concept and a good buzzword, but in practical application has a lot of problems and has to be rolled out a certain way with certain support to even have a chance of working. Not saying it's going to work, but just to have a chance to work. Law enforcement has to buy in. The criminal justice courts have to buy in. The support system has to be in place. What this article shows is the people who did this ballot initiative, this was voted on, in Portland, had an idea that they wanted to try something different because mass incarceration of drug users does not solve the drug problem. We know this. The tough-on-crime stuff from the 90s, the crime bill, just say no to drugs. We have 25, 30 years of data on how that worked. It exploded the carceral state. It exploded the government bureaucracy that has to keep that going It made everything worse, and it did very little to do anything about the drug problem. Dealing with addiction, criminally or as an addiction as a healthcare issue, has to be a multi-level approach. And what we see over and over again in municipalities and states and the federal government and everybody else is people want to try to pick out one little part of it, work with just that, and say they're doing something about it. Like many problems, drug addiction and criminal drug use is not going to get solved with more money. It's not going to really get solved with more policing. Well, you can temporarily bump the numbers down and throw more people in jail, 
But now you've got more problems with dealing with jails. And we'll talk about some other time the reporting on how bad the jail system is right now. They go to jail. They don't get treatment. They come back worse addicts before. Plus, they're now more institutionalized and more criminalized because they were in prison. And you get this nice, big, fat, vicious cycle. One of the most important parts of this story was the rollout. They decriminalized before they had anything anywhere near the supporting structure for addiction and addiction recovery in place. If you're going to do a decriminalization, you have to to put people into the programs to try to deal with their addiction. You have to have those programs in place. Just decriminalizing it without having those programs in place was setting yourself up for failure. Having law enforcement that thinks it's a waste of their time to do so, and in this case probably was because they knew the support system was not in place, also hurts. Plus, let's just be real here. You now have a law enforcement system in America that is very big business. It is going to be really hard to wean people in the law enforcement and criminal justice system off the money that comes in being hard on drug use and fighting the war on drugs. As stupid as that's been, it's making municipalities a lot of money. It makes law enforcement folks a lot of funding and grants and support at the state and federal level. This is big business. You got to deal with the money part of this, too. And as while as we're talking about money, treatment recovery is enormously expensive. It requires a lot of hard infrastructure. It requires a lot of expensive people to run it because you have to have medical professionals. You have to have an overseeing doctor. You're going to have to have lots and lots of addiction specialists who know what they're doing. And you're going to have to put these people in residence for long periods of time, sometimes months, to get them in in and through recovery. Then you got to have the peer networks and the setups after that to keep them in recovery as they continue to work on their journey. That is a massive outlay. At some point, if you're serious about dealing with the drug problem and the crime problem, you got to deal with the addiction problem. And the addiction problem is going to be a massive upfront expense for municipalities, states, and the federal government and the taxpayers. But at some point, you're going to have to have the adult conversation of, We need to have this massive outlay up front on dealing with things like drug addiction, like mental health issues, because paying for them on the back end by throwing these people in jail sometimes for the rest of their life is also really expensive and getting more expensive and making crime worse and making people worse and making the country worse. And we can't keep enough people as corrections officers and others to keep the carceral system going. So maybe we should have a little bit of forethought and just spend some money up front on prevention and treatment and then try to deal with the criminal aspect of this stuff. You're going to have to do it all at once. Piecemealing it will make all of these problems worse. Apparently, as a country, as a people, as a society, we ain't ready for that conversation. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, 
Welcome back to Herd Tell. We've been talking to Chris Kay for our Western correspondent out there in the Denver area. She does radio. She does a column for the Denver Post. She sues people that are presidential candidates. We'll talk about that some other time. You're a busy, busy bee, and we appreciate you taking time out for us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Always love talking to you. Uh, I don't know if Dickens ever thought of this, but what we have here on both one side of the front range and on the other side here is a tale of two Congress critters between Ken Buck and Lauren Boebert. Uh, as a writer, somebody that actually teaches media and writing and things like that, like you just couldn't lay out a better story as far as contrast go than these two, could you? I love material. So anytime a congressperson opens their mouth, usually I get some material to write about. So I was very pleased. Ken Buck, kudos to him. Um, he, We've got this crazy, and I mean full-on certifiable group of people running the, the Republican Party. Keep in mind, I am a registered Republican, been a Republican for decades. I was a Democrat back in my you know college years, but have been a Republican most of the time. I uh, embrace most of you know the the things that republicans stand for rule of law free trade you know a limited government things like that i'm pro-life but uh we've got a certifiable party here running the show and they put out this letter saying you know oh our you know the jan six guys are the ones that were storming the capitol they're being treated so bad in prison and it had all of these basically conspiracy theory of faux facts supporting their case that somehow these guys are stuck in a gulag. And in fact, they actually invoked the gulag archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn saying, oh, this is this is in America. It's, it's the gulag archipelago. I'm like, how dare you? If you've actually read that book, you know how absolutely awful these communist prisons were. And in fact, the few folks that are in prison for January 6th are being treated just fine. They're not being fed, you know, sewer water and and uh, you know, moldy bread. They 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 get their three meals a day. They get to talk to their lawyer. They're going to be fine. Um, so he puts out a letter. So this letter comes out from the party, crazy, full of uh, misinformation. And Ken Buck, to his credit, wrote a three-page letter saying, "No, these are not the facts." And um, he got it out there. Those of us who appreciate him, the fact that he's a solid conservative Republican, his willingness to combat misinformation and take these guys on. Now, it's not really appreciated by those folks, but I certainly appreciate it. So that's one side of the story, the the yin to uh, Bobert's yang, if you will. And the thing before we move on to Bobert, though, is Ken Buck is what would be kind of considered a hardline right Republican in the before times, before yeah. everybody lost. Like, look, he he's a very, very right wing very conservative, what you would think of as the hard right before all the Trump stuff, that was him. You know, th this is yeah. not some moderate, squishy bomb throw. Like, Ken Buck, it was that guy. For folks to get to his right on stuff and really go off the cliff, just lay the land for folks that aren't familiar with Ken Buck. Like, look, this is a Freedom Caucus guy, one of the original ones, if I remember correctly. You know, he's he was about as far right as you get, and then these people went to his right and said, no, hold my beer. That's what we're really talking about here, right? <laughs> yeah, there's the solid right, and there's the crazy right, and definitely Ken Buck was part of the solid right. So you think about Colorado. Colorado is a square state, well, rectangular state, and all along the uh, sort of center part uh, where the mountains meet the plains, what we call the Front Range, those 
uh, there's a whole lot of Congress people representing a very large population. Only one of those folks is a solid conservative, Congressman Landborn, uh, re representing the uh, Colorado Springs area. Rest of the the that corridor is fairly fairly to the left or full on left in the case of Boulder or Denver, but the mountains. Mountain District, which Lauren Boebert represents, and the Plains, which is the other part of the state, is represented by Congressman Ken Buck. And Ken Buck, solid conservative, pro-life, solid rule of law, solid on you know free trade, limited government, let's balance the budget. He was, you know, he's he's a good guy. He's, he's done good work for that for that community. And for him to say no, um, you know, he, he's he's in a very uh, a diplomatic way, he said no to Trump's lies. He said no to the crazy stuff that comes out of the state party, and he's taken some heat for it. Yeah, it's funny too with Kim Buck, Krista K for joining us from out in Denver. The funny thing with Kim Buck here is he was one of the guys when we looked at the McCarthy stuff, when we look at the current Congress, and as we're recording this and talking about this, the shutdowns looming and all the chaos that's involved with that. There's going to be an impeachment of Joe Biden at some point. Ken Buck was one of the people that when I talked to correspondents and had him on the show about Congress, about the inner workings of what's going on, the shutdowns, the inquiries, the impeachment stuff, all those things, the Kevin McCarthy stuff, a lot of them would tell me like, OK, the Matt Gates of the worlds don't really matter. The Lauren Boebert's of the words. Marjorie Taylor Greene has influence from the car. You got to watch people like Ken Buck. When he says something against the party, that's who you pay attention to. That's not me saying that. That's the people that are in Congress covering Congress. They were saying, like, he's one of the people you watch because he's one of the ones that will speak up. That's probably going to cost him with the wider, you know, caucus, especially the Trump folks aren't going to enjoy that. And McCarthy's now, you know, feeling his wrath. But that was his reputation among his peers and the people covering Congress would say that. It's like, no, he's one of the ones to watch because he... He will go against the flow. He will buck the trend to really have the pun on it. Buck the trend, yes, definitely. Um, and uh, he, yeah, I, I'm proud of him for doing it because it's very easy to sit back. You know, if you talk to a lot of these Congress people behind behind the scenes, the conservatives, they know that Trump lied. They know that Biden won. They know these things. Um, they yet uh, publicly, they they kind of mumble and 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 they won't say what they mean because they're afraid of their base and they're afraid they're going to get a primary. They're afraid they're going to lose support. They're afraid they're going to come back to two thousand emails saying, "How dare you not embrace the big lie conspiracy theory?" And so, to his credit, being a solid conservative representing a solidly conservative district, has said, "No, we can be conservative. We can be for the values of the Republican Party." We can still stand up for those. We can still stand up to President Biden and the Democrats and the whole woke machine. And we can do that without embracing misinformation, disinformation, January 6th, Trump and his uh, attempt to steal the election. We can stand up against that and still be solid, good Republicans. So I really appreciate him. Yeah. And the thing about it is you just touched on it. Ken Buck agrees with, you know, the Trump wing of the party, Kevin McCarthy, pick whoever you want on the Republic, like 90, 95 percent of stuff. They all agree on policy wise, ideology wise. It's just the cuckoo for Cocoa Puff stuff. It's the election integrity. It's the bad behavior. It's the blatant stuff that the MAGA caucus and the Trump folks 
and the Matt Gates is the world's and those folks where they just want to rub stuff in people's faces. That's where he started drawing line. And this isn't a new thing. He did this back in 2021 over the January 6th stuff. He did it over the election integrity stuff. You know, you can disagree with him on his politics, but he's one of the few that kind of drew a line. like, okay, I'm not going to crazy land with you, even if I agree with you on stuff. Exactly. And I, you know, I really appreciate that. So I was a congressional staffer forever ago back under the Clinton administration. And I remember when Clinton, you know, found out that, that he had had this affair with Lewinsky, he had uh, tried to cover it up. There was all these machinations. It was, uh, it was, it was disgusting. And again, you had a bunch of party stalwarts as well as the national organization for women and others saying, well, it's really not that bad. What, what two people do is fine. You know, perjury, if, you know, if perjury is okay, if it's, if it's about sex, and they were just a handful of Democrats who were like, no, this is disgusting. It's beneath the office. We don't need this. We don't need somebody doing these things, lying about them, covering them up. And I appreciated those Democrats back in the day. And I appreciate the Republicans today that are saying the same thing. You can be a good representative of your party, Democrat or Republican, and still call out bad behavior on your team's side. In fact, I think it's necessary when teams get to a point where they're embracing cheating by their own members whether it's cheating in a marriage or cheating in an election, when you're embracing that stuff, you're ultimately hurting the party when you allow that kind of bad behavior to continue. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church and Maine podcasts at the website churchandmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the sweaty penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.
Yeah, Chris Decay for joining us. I'm glad you brought that up because I've been t- – look, I remember that. That was the 98 midterms, and then they impeached in 99. That was my first election that I got to vote in, and I was paying really close attention to all this. I tell people all the time, I was like, that was great training for the Trump era because you got a real <laughs> yes. first for hands – you got a front row seat. You got to remember, we had to go through three Republican speakers of the House to get that done because they kept having scandals. You had hypocrisy all the way around. You had people covering for Clinton. People forget you had people, you had staffers for Clinton going on TV, you know, trashing the previous accusers. You had the dollar through the trailer park comment. That was on the national news, folks. You can go YouTube it. Um, Carville and these guys coming out and saying just despicable things that wouldn't fly now. That era was when I first, you know, started voting and paying attention to politics. It was great training for now. Because I can draw you a line through a lot of this stuff all the way back to that impeachment claim and the infamous comment. It was on ABC News, folks. You can go look it up of, oh, but Clinton lies so well, you can't help but admire him. And then when everybody wants to wring their hands, well, how did we get to Trump? It's like, well, you got there by degrees. You got there, you know, gradually, then suddenly. And you can go back to those Clinton years where you had a pretty some pretty despicable people in the Republican side of Congress trying to impeach Clinton for something that he did that was blatantly wrong, but you weren't going to get an impeachment on. Just take people back. Like people think this stuff is new in Congress, this mess, this dirtiness. This isn't new. It's always been this way. The technology and how we cover it has changed, but this is not a new thing having hypocrisy in Congress at all, is it? No, I mean, and neither is it sort of raw, raw, my team overall, you know, this my team right or wrong kind of thing. That's not new. Obviously, hypocrisy is not new. It's really just kind of go to the core of who we are as human beings. The question is, though, is in the moment, do you decide to lean in to your your your, your better angels that say, hey, we need to call this stuff out. We need to get this, this stuff cleaned up. Or are you going to um, or I should say even, you know, are we going to simply say, hey, you know what, bad behavior is okay. You know, we're just going to point it out when it happens to the other side. It's, you know, it's not a new thing. Um, but I think it's hit a level, at least at least Clinton looked ashamed. I don't think he was necessarily, but he looked ashamed. Remember when he kind of put his head down and, you know, I'm kind of ashamed. He had the, uh, he at least had to pretend to be ashamed. Anthony Weiner, um kind of at least looked ashamed, whether he was ashamed or not, who knows. Um, but now we're at an era of sort of post-shame in which when we do terrible things, you just smile at the camera and say, yeah, there it is. And then you go after the other guy. Um, I, you know, whether it's Lauren Boebert, who showed very little uh, shame for her behavior at the theater, at Donald Trump and all of his escapades, um, you know, whether it's fraudulent business dealings or sleeping with porn stars or, uh, you know, trying to steal an election, whatever it is that he does, there's no shame. He just stares at the camera and smiles and then goes after the other guy. That kind of post-shame, where at least you don't look like you're sorry, um, I think is a little bit unique. Um, not unique to humankind, not unique to history, but unique in the sense that back in the 90s, when you you got in, you know, you first voted, I was working for members of Congress, uh, at least you had to look ashamed um, that that apparently is a bygone era.
Yeah, I also remember a claim carrying the ridiculously oversized Bible to church for weeks on end after <laughs> that, but that's another story for another day. You just did it. I mean, we could do a list here. George Santos, you know, Bob Menendez in the Senate, who should have been kicked out five, six years ago, and yes. here we are again no with shame. a new indictment. You know, to be fair to Bob, he didn't know it was gold bars. He thought it was the usual cash payment and prostitutes he's used to when he gets paid off. <laughs> Allegedly, of course. Um, this is a bipartisan problem, but that brings us to your friend and ours, Lauren Boebert. Let's just start right there, though. She did come out and apologize, which I was kind of a little, I'll be honest, I was surprised she apologized at all for it, but she did. You know the lay of the land there. This is somebody who barely squeaked out. It was under 500 votes. It was like 450 votes. Why did she apologize? Because she's one of those, you never apologize for anything. You just rub people's face mm -hmm. in it. Is it the electoral situation? Is it because it was on, let's be honest, this is on video. Once it's on video, it's a very different thing, you know. Is it the video? Is well, it, it the electoral days. thing? Why is she actually apologizing? Because that was against what we know as her public persona to apologize. I appreciated it, but I was surprised by it. It took a good week to get there, though. So first, first she denied it. No, I wasn't vaping. And then they they picked this video. So there's, you know, there's cameras in the theater for, for obviously for security reasons. So some some different people took the kind of broad camera angle, focused it down, found it not only was she vaping, um, she was also groping her uh, boyfriend and being groped by him, a boyfriend lover, I don't know who he is, but oh, and we know who he is, he's a bar owner in Aspen. But they're sort of mutually groping each other. Um, you know, there was, it. there's a reason why she was kicked out of the theater. You also see her flipping off staff. Um, you know, she says, you know, do you know who I am? That entitlement attitude of yes, I'm a congresswoman, so I'm allowed to sit here and vape and and grope in the middle of a packed theater where tickets cost well over 150 bucks a piece, and there are kids present. So she you know she does this, then she comes out with this. Well, I didn't do it. Then it's very clear she did do it, and she goes on OAN, some you know random news work uh, news network that I, don't, I, I use the word news I think loosely on that, but. She goes on and says, oh, it was my animated personality that got me kicked out. Um, animated hands, maybe, but not animated personality. And then days after that comes out with, a, well, I'm, I'm sorry for my behavior. I'm in the middle of a bad divorce. Well, you know what? A lot of Americans are in the middle of a bad divorce, are in pain, are struggling. doesn't mean that they go to a, a packed theater and grope their boyfriend. Um, what she did was beneath the office. I... It was a time, a time where she would have felt compelled to resign. Now she offers a tepid apology that says, I'm, you know, I'm having a rough time, so I did this. Um, what you did was, was kind of disgusting. And you know, it's one thing for somebody who's you know, 23 to do something like that. Um, she's well past 23. She is a congresswoman. And she's a family values congresswoman. So she's out there pointing her finger saying, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. Um, and then ends up doing something like this. And, and so I wish we could have a standard where you can talk family values or you can grope your boyfriend in public, but you can't do both. Um, you can talk about your concerns about global warming, but you can't jet around in a private jet and live in a 10,000 square foot mansion. You, you can't do both. Um, you know, you can't, you, you, you can't do both. Um, you can, uh, you know, you can be for something, but if you're not living those values, uh, do us all a favor and don't talk about them. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be out there like championing pollution or championing groping, but at least don't talk about the family values 
or about the, uh, you know, your concerns about global warming when clearly you haven't altered your own lifestyle. Um, you know, or, or the, you know, you think about Democrats who are like, oh, I care so much about the poor. And then you look at their tax returns and they haven't given a dime to charity. So you either care about the poor or, you know, you can not give to charity, but you can't do both. You can't say one thing and do another. And I, I wish we could make that the standard because I, th I, I think it's the hypocrisy that is, is most troublesome in these situations. Yeah, Krista Kay for joining us. I got a feeling that this played a little different nationally than it did locally, because, of course, this was, you know, fodder par excellence for everybody. We got video. We got a congresswoman in a skimpy dress messing around with her boyfriend in night vision. And we got the groping. And actually, the part that I took the most, you know, concern and offense with was when the, the lady turned around and talked to her. And you could just see by the body language how harsh she's being to that person and then how harsh she was to the, yeah. you know, making the hand gestures and stuff to the staff as she was being escorted out. And then doing her little twirl out on the steps and all that. You know, you could just tell the behavior from that. But that's the national narrative. And she's a lightning rod for attention anyway. How did it play? Look, look, you do local radio. You're a columnist. Denver Post, obviously, is a national newspaper, but you're a local columnist. How did it play locally with the folks? Because Colorado, I know the national narrative is, well, that's a deep red safe district. Yeah, it is, but she barely won it. So Colorado politics is always a little more complicated than they appear, and they're rapidly changing. How did it play locally? So she she only won by under 600 votes. Uh, there's a, and, and she's not polling particularly well. My hope is that in the primary, this stuff uh, will play against her, and we'll get a strong solid Republican going into the general election. If if she wins her primary, the chances of her losing in the general are pretty high. Um, it is a, a an up 14 uh, point district for the Republicans. It is a solidly red district. It'll be one of those situations where a Democrat wins for two years and then another a solid Republican comes along and, and will beat him or who him or her although it's likely to be a him, it's Adam Fritch, um, who is a uh, former mayor of Aspen. There's, I think he is uh, kind of the one that it will most likely head into the general. He's got a lot of money in the bank. He's polling very well against her. And I do think this plays, this plays well for him. Not that people will, uh, Republicans will choose to vote for him necessarily, but they will simply choose not to vote top of the ticket if she is on that top ticket. Now she still has her supporters. I've read, I've you know, read of people saying, "Hey, you know, I agree with her on the issues. I don't care what she does outside of uh, outside of voting." And I, you know, that there is that sort of my team right or wrong um, on both sides of the aisle. Uh, people who will vote for, you know, whether it's Biden or Trump or or Boebert or Menendez or you know, uh, Mendez rather. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll vote for their party no matter what, but there are also other people who will simply not bother. Okay, for joining us. I wanted to ask you real quick while we had you, though. You did some writing a while back, a couple columns back, um, on the future of news. 
you have a little bit of a unique perspective because, like you said, you've been a congressional sta- staffer. You've also done radio. You've been a columnist for a long time. You also teach, you know, media and communication and things like that. So you have a wide perspective on that topic. Where do you see news media going? Um, I see it fragmenting a little bit more, and then I'll, I see a conglomeration going back together. People's always like, "What do you mean by that?" It's like, well, it's like kind of like cutting the cable cord. Everybody cut the cable, and now all the streaming services are starting to bundle back together. You just kind of lather, rinse, repeat. I think we're in one of those things right now where it's kind of fragmented, and then it'll come back together and then fragment again. I think that's kind of where we're at. Where you know, radio. One example, this show comes out as podcast, but I've got a background in radio. Radio and podcasting were very different paths for a long time. Now they're coming together because the radio stations finally figured out what we've been telling them for five years now. TK Turbo, my producer, God bless you. We've been telling radio stations like, no, podcasting's your friend. You need to join with them. They're going to save your butt. And you're seeing that. You see things like that going on. Where do you see news media going in the next few years, especially after a presidential cycle where it'll spike up and then you'll have that inevitable drop off and things like ratings? Give us your perspective on it. You know, it's it's always been evolving. And um, so this piece that I wrote for my paid subscribers on my Substack. So if you go to Substack, type in Krista Kafer, you can have a uh, a free subscription and get my columns there. I, I publish those about four days after they publish in the Denver Post. If you do a paid subscription, you actually get some of the essays. And it was a larger essay on on the, the sort of past and future of news. I just finished a book called The Noise of Typewriters, uh, excellent by Matt, Lance Morrow. Um, he often writes for the Wall Street Journal. He was with Time Magazine forever. And so looking at news, and then I kind of you know, he, he's talking about the, sort of the golden era of magazine news. I take it back to kind of the beginning of news, sort of, you know, after the, the printing press is invented. And, you know, news has always existed, you know, uh, news and gossip, uh, what's going on with the regime, what's going on in my local community, when that goes to print, um, how that evolved, how there was a time when you could read newspapers, maybe it was trustworthy, maybe it wasn't, then those become very professionalized in after the, the turn of the 20th century, uh, a professionalization um, begins a little bit earlier than that, where you get a, a separation of opinion from news and uh, news becomes a lot less partisan. Um, there's still some partisanship in terms of the editorial page, but you don't have hardcore partisan papers, you know, partisan from page one to the, to the end. That changes over time. Um, and now things are changing again with the new technology, um, not exactly new technology, but you know, a lot of folks are getting their news off of uh, social media. Um, I think about the way I read the paper in the morning. I don't read it. I, I look at it cover to cover, but I do a lot of, uh, you know, reading of headlines and, and that uh, first paragraph, uh, the, the consumption of news, how news has become more partisan, the fracturing of news. We used to have a, two newspapers in this town, Denver Post, Rocky Mountain News. Then we ended up with one paper. Now we have like one real newspaper, uh, the Denver Post, but then several great news sites, uh, Denver Gazette, Colorado Sun, uh, coloradopolitics.com. I mean, it's become very rich again, um, splintered. I, you know, Do you end up with some of those things reforming and um, you know, between not just newspapers, but also... TV, podcasting, blogging, websites. I, I think things are going to be shake, shaken up for a while. Uh, there's a lot of distrust of news, um, some of it for good reason. 
Uh, but then again, do you trust some random blog where there's no vetting process or do you trust something that has had some vetting? Um, say, you know, a newspaper, a radio station or, uh, or a, te a television station where they actually have to retract errors or do you trust an or you know a, a random blog where there could, it could be riddled with errors um, and no processes for re for for remediating those errors? So, you know it's a, it's in flux, but what isn't? Long explanation. I apologize. No, that's why we do podcasting. It's long form. I can put the commercial where I want it. But that's it. That's actually the exact example you go to because like when I do mentoring with the Young Voices kids on doing media, it's like. Look, when you do a radio hit, it's a different thing. You got to get it out. If you're doing a three head on a TV show at, you know, 20 after the hour, you know, you get six minutes, three heads. You better have a 30 second answer ready. Those are skill sets, but they're different because they're different mediums and you got to do different media for different things. I think we're going to get into a space where people are finding that, yes, they like, you know, short form media or I like the radio format or I like a podcast where guys just talk for two or three hours on end on certain subjects, which I want on certain subjects. But I don't want my news media going for three hours. I need that, you know, 30, 45 second hit. Oh, this is what's going on. This is why this is why to follow it. I think the a la carte part of media, the media companies haven't figured it out yet. And most media content people haven't figured it out either. And at some point, those things are going to start melting down where it's just going to be more and more specialized. I think that's probably kind of where it's going. Krista Kafer joining us. Let folks know real quick until we get you back. I'm a subscriber to her Substack. You should be too. Follow that, your columns and everything else you got going on, my friend. Well, if you're on Twitter, go to at Krista Kafer. It's Krista with a K, Kafer with a K. And no, my middle name does not start with K. It starts with an L. Um, also, I've got a public Facebook page. I've got a Substack. Um, the Substack is, is is where you can really uh, get some of the, the the longer form stuff that I write. Um, yeah, and of course I I get to come on come on here on occasion, so uh, um, you can always catch me here. We will take you any chance we get you. We love having our Western correspondents because we look that that East Coast bias thing's a real thing. I lived in Vegas. You know, we we forget about those Western countries unless Deion Sanders takes over a college football program. Then everybody wants to talk about Colorado. <laughs> all of a sudden. We'll talk about that some. He's other very time. inspirational. I I love. I, I, I just I, go ahead. Oh, I say I just I'm not a sports person. I don't watch it. And if you give me free tickets, I'll show up. Um, but I I don't I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't care. I don't follow sports but i actually follow him on twitter because i find him it's just very inspirational and he's very positive yeah i and that's the part of that story that people didn't get in sports i was like people that don't care about college football are following that story because of beyond sanders that's why the ratings are up and mm -hmm. they just didn't understand you know look they're they're not the top program oregon beat them badly usc's probably going to beat them pretty badly because those those teams have been recruiting at a deep level for 40 years and he has been for four months like it's just it's a mismatch but what they're going to do while he's there if you listen to how he recruits the way he put his staff together coaches that were turning down head coaching jobs just so they could go to boulder and be with him it's going to work and it's good for the sport and it's a great story and everybody needs to just calm down and enjoy the good story and quit throwing their priors at it that's just my opinion. Look, I, you know, we get them in the Big 12 and they got to play WVU. We'll change our tune on that. But other than that, I'm all for it. Chris Kafer, have you any chance we can get you? Love having you. You keep them straight out there out west and we'll talk soon. Sounds good to me. Thank you, man.
and that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of, things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. we got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click. Herdtel.substack.com. We sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media. Herdtel Show on the Twitter. Four for the Fires, my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X. But if you could share us and let folks know that our programs are worth checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.